morning. Get your Bibles out. Get ready to take some notes. We've got a lot of ground to cover today, and I feel just a real sense of importance on this, this day for me. This is kind of a big deal. There's a word that God's dropped into my heart about a month ago, and uh, it had nothing to do with the election, but it has everything to do with the world. And uh, some, some years ago, I felt like the Lord said, Bill, I want to draw your attention away from the things of what I would call lower nature. You don't wrestle against flesh and blood. You're made in my image and likeness. My words are spirit and life, so are your words, and your speech is more than sound. And when you speak and you release, there will be an anointing that's released into the atmosphere that literally the earth responds to. Now, I didn't understand that, but I, I realized there was a mandate of God on my life personally, not to talk about politics or even national issues, but to seek first the kingdom. Uh, now, for me, that's been a priority, and I get criticized a lot because I ignore the political stuff, but I always feel like uh, that there's nothing going on in this world in, in, on a national level that is meant to distract me from seeking first the kingdom of God and his rights. Kind of, uh, it's been my view, according to uh, Jesus. So that was, that was kind of, uh, it's been my, uh, my consuming passion for many, many years. And uh, this year, about a month ago, I, I was praying, God, I, I'm seeing the turmoil. I mean, if you, if you want to see your peace and your joy destroyed, just go ahead and, like, turn on the news for 10 minutes. I mean, it's like suddenly you realize you're getting, like, negatively prophesied over without even realizing it. I mean, it's, it's, it's toxic to your soul and spirit. Even if your mind feels like it's filled with information, your ability to perceive revelation suddenly goes away. See, information will con confuse you. Revelation clarifies. Revelation brings peace to your spirit. We, we have more information right now. Every person on here can pick up this phone and, and research everything I'm about to tell you. You can look up scriptures in 150 di different translations. If there's anything you don't like that I say, you can get on here and find somebody that's going to say exactly the opposite. You got more information than we've ever had, and we're less clear than we've ever been. Without revelation from the Holy Spirit, we have no idea what to think. Uh-huh. So I feel like God has stirred some revelation in me that's really timely. And, uh, and I think it's going to speak to the needs of the day that we're in right now. And it's also going to give us a roadmap on how to move forward. Because we are in a weird world. So weird. I used to say, I used to have this thing that I used to say where I'd say, if you could just drop yourself into a time machine and go back to any point in time in history that's better than the one we're in now, where would you go? And I would think to myself, there's no place I would want to go. I've kind of walked that back a little bit. <laughs> this year, I've really like walked that thing back quite a bit. I'm like... Come on, I, I would love to go back to when nobody ever heard of coronavirus. I, oh my goodness. But we are on a linear time scale that's forcing us forward. And as the body of Christ, you actually carry the answer. We, we, need, we need a revival in this world. We know that. We need a move of God in this world. We know that. We need, we need a wave of healing over this world. But we, we actually need to learn how, I think, to step into what God gave Adam all the way back in Genesis 1.26. 
We're so long after the creation. We're so long after the cross. And we still are beginning just now to learn to discover who we really are and what we have access to. And without that, we will go forward in fear, stumbling from one difficulty to the next as humanity, rather than walking in the power, the might, and the dominion that God actually told us that we have access to. So it's what I want to talk to you about today. It'll be fun. Yay. I have a few, uh, before I really dive into this today, I have a few resources out there. There's a book called Reckless Grace that I'm really, really thrilled about that Broad Street Publishing picked up and has run with, and uh, I co-wrote it with a dear friend of mine, Britt Eaton, who's here this morning, and so, so, so honored to have my co-writer and uh, her family here. Yay, yeah, give it up for Britt and Mike and Bella, some of our dearest friends, and, uh, and so uh, it's very rare that we're in the same meeting at the same time, so both of us could sign your book, and uh, if, you, if you get one, Britt will write a prophetic word to every person who, I'm kidding. I'm there's, a, there's a number of things that are out there. One of them is a, a USB thumb drive, 24-hour teaching on identity. There's a 12-hour there's a teaching on spiritual warfare. I call it spiritual joyfare. You have way more fun. You get way more done. And, uh, and then there's, a, there's one out there called uh, uh, Restoring Revelation. And it's 10 hours of teaching on a New Covenant perspective of the book of Revelation. And you get done with it, you will love the book of Revelation. It's filled with so much hope and victory and life, it'll just blow your tires out. It's, it's a lot of fun. So, uh, so all those are out there. All right. Got your Bibles? Go to Genesis chapter 4. And I want to take you on a journey today. <clears throat> These days, I hear a lot about 2 Chronicles 7.14, where God comes to, it starts up in verse 12, where God comes to Solomon and says, I've heard your prayer. I've chosen this place as a place for my uh, a house of uh, this place of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven, there'd be no rain. If I command pestilence to devour the land, he goes on to talk about a lot of hypotheticals. If I were to do all this thing, these things, and it's not that he's going to. He's saying here's a bunch of hypotheticals, but he answers the hypothetical ifs with an absolute I will. He says, I will hear from heaven, my people call by my name, humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, number one, I will forgive their sin, number two, and I will heal their land. Now hearing from heaven is exactly what he did in Christ. Christ is the answer to every prayer we have ever prayed or ever will pray. Jesus is the way. He is ultimately the way to the Father, the truth about the Father, and the life of the Father. He came to fully reveal the heart of a Father who didn't come to create a crowd or a congregation. He came to build family. That's why he calls himself Father. And so he came to reveal that ultimately he is the answer to every prayer we will ever pray. He, he is the hearing from heaven. What did the cross do? He forgave our sin. How much sin did he deal with on the cross? All of it. If the blood of a goat could take away the sins of an entire nation for an entire year under an old covenant, how much sin did the blood of the Lamb of God deal with? So he's heard from heaven. He's forgiven our sin Third thing, and I will heal their land. But how does that happen? That's what I want to talk a little bit about today. 
Because we have an atmosphere in this earth right now that is in turmoil. And I don't think it's a physical thing. I think it's a physical reality, but it's a spiritual uh, foundation. There's a spiritual, uh, there, there's a greater spiritual reality to everything going on in this physical world. This physical world is called the seen world. The, the spiritual world is called the unseen world, not perceivable easily by our physical senses. Though it is perceivable, it's not the first thing that we see. Okay, so the physical world is called the seen. The unseen world is the spiritual world. Jesus said it like this, that the things of the physical world, the seen world, those things are passing away, but the things in the unseen realm, those things endure forever. So the unseen has greater value than the seen. That means that everything that is in this physical world is simply responding to or is a type and a shadow of the things in the unseen world, which means that we actually, we, we, I would say this, influence the atmosphere of this physical realm or what's going on in this physical realm when we operate from the unseen spiritual realm. Does that make sense to you? I hope it makes sense to you because it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I don't preach stuff just because I know it. I preach it because I hear it. But I learn while I'm talking. I'm just telling you, okay? So just in case you think, man, this guy knows what he's talking about, I can't identify with you. If you think, I, I get all, oh, yeah, I totally get all that. No, I'm, I'm sitting here preaching this because I'm going, God, you got to teach me about this. So if you're in the room and you're going, I don't understand this, but I feel life on it, I identify with you, all right? Just saying. So the very first uh, assignment that God ever gives man is in Genesis chapter, uh, chapter 1 where he says, chapter 1 and 2, where God creates man in his image and likeness. Then he tells man this. He says to Adam, he says, name all of the animals. Now in Hebrew culture, to name something is more than just give it something to be called. To name something actually means to assign nature to it. In other words, Adam had a, a responsibility to made in the image and likeness of God as creator. God speaks things into existence. He declares a thing and it happens. Now God looks at Adam and goes, now you get to this first act of discipleship. You get to copy what I've done. Let's start with the animals. I want you to open your mouth, make a declaration, and from that declaration from your physical body, your speech that's more than sound will assign nature to what you've just spoken over. So that's Adam's first job, to assign nature to the world through the power of declaration. So how many of you know that your speech is a big deal? The Bible says life and death are in the power of the tongue. We heard that quoted this morning. So that's man's very first assignment, is to exercise the authority of declaration to actually have an effect upon the nature of the world that he lives in. That the spiritual, the unseen spiritual, would actually have an impact on the seen physical. Now I want to take you to Genesis chapter 4. And in Genesis 4, we're going to find a familiar story if you grew up in, in uh, church. We're going to find the story of Cain and Abel. And Cain and Abel's story is such a weird story because it's the story of the very first church service we ever have on record. Cain and Abel are two very different brothers. Cain, uh, he's a farmer. He likes his vegetables. Abel, he, he's raising sheep. He's raising cattle. He's raising flocks and herds. And so, so they bring uh, an offering to the Lord. Uh, Cain brings, uh, you know, some turnips or something. I don't know what he brings. He brings vegetables to God. 
right? He doesn't have to do a whole lot. He puts seeds into the ground, he waters it, and then, you know, he pulled something out of the ground, and he brings it to God and said, here's what I got. Now, Abel's got a completely different thing going on. Abel actually has to birth a lamb. He has to nurture it, tend to it, care for it. There's, there's an element of investment that goes into this that carries weight and value. And what Abel does is he takes the best of his flock, the first of his flock, and he brings that to God as a sacrifice. Now, God looks at it, and, and he loves the sacrifice of meat. He's not super hot on the vegetables. I don't know what you want to do with that, but if you're a vegetarian, no condemnation for you, all right? Just saying, God likes meat. I'm, I'm cool with that. So God's, God's thrilled with the sacrifice, not so thrilled with this. It's interesting to note that God isn't rejecting Cain. He's just saying, listen, that's not really a sacrifice, man. I mean, it's an offering, yes, but it's not a sacrifice. And so uh, Cain, he gets upset, and God comes to Cain, and he says this. He says, Cain, why are you so angry? And you know how God can tell? It says in Genesis 4, he says, because your countenance has fallen. And isn't it interesting that what God looks at is the face, your countenance. I love what Jim says. Jim's like, you know, if you've got the joy of the Lord in your heart, please notify your face. Great. Great line. You know, something we should never have to say in revival culture, right? But God actually says, he looks at Cain and says, I can see what's going on in here because I'm looking at this. Now, you and I are made in the image and likeness of God. Does that mean that we look like God? No, it just means that we carry certain attributes in our physical, in our physical makeup that actually reflect things that God does. He sees, he hears, he speaks. He can actually, he can actually all these things that we have the senses of in our, in our mind, he thinks, he ponders. All of these things that we have the ability to do with the physical senses connected to our countenance, God actually demonstrates all of these traits. And so uh, you, you see this beauty of the image and likeness of God on humanity. As a matter of fact, people ask me a lot of times, they say, Bill, what's the difference between the image and likeness of God? The image of God is, the, is the, it's the, uh, the very attributes of God, the fingerprint of God upon humanity. And every person who has ever or will live, it all carries the image of God. But the likeness of God is the representation of those attributes. How we represent that creativity, that love, that joy, that peace, that kingdom reality of that authority that God carries in humility in a way that... that we don't know how to put the likeness on display without the redemptive work of Christ and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit's leading. It's our surrender to his leading that shows us what a redeemed image and likeness looks like. By, by following his voice, by surrendering in a heart of repentance to say, God, I don't know what to think without your thoughts. I need the mind of Christ. Then we know how to begin to put the image on display to where the likeness is redeemed. The image, by the way, since everybody carries the image of God, or that attribute fingerprint, I would say, it's why that you can listen to, let's say, a secular song and hear anointing on it. Why? Because they're creating something from a place. They don't know where it's coming from. We call it humanistic talent or the development of a gift or whatever, but the reality is, is they're only able to put a level of anointing on because they have the image of God in their life. And when you begin to actually, when you see that anointing on people, when you start calling that out, 
Then you start to call out their destiny. Their spirit responds to it, and their heart opens to the gospel. Evangelism 101. All right. So, so here's, here's God saying to Cain, hey, your countenance is uh, fallen. He goes, if you do well, your countenance will be lifted up. But if you do not do well, and then God says three things to Cain that are really fascinating. He says, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Now, this is an interesting statement that God makes here. Because a lot of times people say, well, I have this sin nature that's just stuck in me. No, you don't. You may have a sin desire cultivated from a lifetime of a sin habit that you learn by watching somebody else's practice. But in terms of an actual nature, that was dealt with once and for all on the cross. You can have a sin nature if you want one. It's at the door. And the door represents a barrier between you and something. And guess who has control over the door? You do. God says to Cain, sin is at the door. It's interesting what God doesn't say to Cain. He doesn't say sin is in you because of what your parents did. He says sin is um, it's there. It's an option for you. There is a barrier between you and it. You must master it. In other words, don't open the door. You know who else is behind the door? Jesus. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. He says, I stand at the door and knock, and if you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in, and I'll beat you up like the rotten sinner that you are, because that's what you deserve. That's not what he says. He says, I'll come in, and we will break bread which in Hebrew culture means we're going to build relationship. We're going to find a place of understanding here. Because relationship with you, that, that reconciled union with you is his first priority. All right? But you've got to open the door. It says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Now, you would think that Cain would hear this from God and go, oh, my goodness. Thank you, God, for confronting my heart, and, 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 and I, I repent. That's not what he does at all. He gets mad because God had a talk with him, and he goes out into the field, and he confronts his brother. And we have no idea what was said in that exchange, but somewhere in that confrontation, Cain murders his brother. Now, think about this with me for a second. The very first church service on record ends with 50% of the congregation killing the other 50% of the congregation over worship. And the music was too loud, the wrong style, I don't know. It's like, think about that. So the church is off to a rocking good start. Now, God, God comes to Cain, and he asks him a couple of questions. How many of you know when God asks you a question, it's not because he's lacking in information, right? He knows what he's talking about. And he says to Cain, he says, Cain, where's your brother? And Cain, first time you see a human being demonstrate something of distance and separation in terms of connection one with another. Because we were all actually meant to be connected on a level that none of us can really put words to. But the reality is, is that in Christ, we are one. And, and I don't know how to explain that any better than just saying it's true. But now you have Cain responding to the question, where's your brother? And he goes like this. He goes, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible for him? 
God's not into arguing with this liar. He doesn't want to do that. So God just cuts to the chase, and he simply says a couple of things that are just incredible. He says, um, your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. As a matter of fact, the ground has opened its mouth to receive the blood of your brother from your hand. And now, this ground will not work for you. Kind of a bad thing to say to a farmer. Now stop and think about what's just happened. Cain kills his brother Abel. God comes to Cain and says, your brother's blood has words, and the ground heard them. And this physical earth is responding to the offense of your brother's blood. And the response of that is actually going to be a generational curse that's going to follow you all the days of your life. Cain, I hate to tell you this, but you're going to be walking on an earth that's going to be mad at you all your life. Kind of interesting how that worked. But see, I think the ground was actually obligated to respond to a person made in the image and likeness of God who was actually righteous and innocent and justified in his judgment. But you know what? The ground just responds to judgment in the way that judgment is meant to be responded to by bringing a curse even if that judgment feels justified. Now, if you feel like you have offense in your life that you're fully justified in, and you've actually let that offense turn into words in your heart that you've spoken out into the atmosphere, i got to tell you, those words have power and they have weight. Yeah, it's true. Cain, your brother's blood's talking, and the ground has heard it. And now, sorry... The ground's going to be angry with you all your life. What happened? Whatever Abel's blood was saying, whatever was in the very depth of Abel's heart, the ground actually responded and obeyed to. We don't know what Abel's blood was saying, but we can see how the ground responded. Now, the Bible says that life and death are in the power of the tongue. The Bible also says life is in the blood. And the Bible says that out of the abundance of the heart, which pumps the blood, uh, the, the, uh, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So you can tell what's in a person's blood by the declarations that come out of their mouth, right? <clears throat> so with that in mind, I want to take you to another portion of Scripture, if you would. Go with me to Matthew chapter 23. When we jump over to Matthew chapter 23, we're going to find an interesting story where Jesus is having a confrontation with some religious leaders. And he says in verse, uh, let's see, in verse 34, he says, Behold, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel. Well, there's Abel again, and Jesus is calling him righteous. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, who you murdered between the temple and the altar, I say truly unto you, all these things will come upon this generation. All right, so kind of an interesting, cryptic, and somewhat morbid statement to make. But then Jesus says a verse that's actually become famous and famous to preach about. But this is the way I always hear this verse. When people quote this verse, they always quote it like this. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you under my wings as a hen gathers her chicks. You heard that? It's a commonly quoted verse. That's not inaccurate. It's just leaving a major part of the verse out. 
And the major part they leave out goes like this. It says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and all I sent to you. It says, how I've longed to gather you. And that gather under, under the wings is protection, by the way. So you see this. You say, Jesus is going, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who are killing my messengers, I really want to protect you. Now, the phrase doesn't make sense to me. Think about this with me for a second. Why is he protecting the murderers? Why is his longing to protect the murderers? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you guys who are killing my prophets, I really want to protect you. What is Jesus protecting them from? I'd like to suggest to you that even good godly men sent by God, appointed by God to actually bring a word of the Lord to people when they were treated unfairly and unjustly prior to Christ through whom came grace and truth. Remember, Jesus came to actually reveal, demonstrate, or put on display grace and truth. But prior to Christ, you get a lot of judgmental prophets. You get a lot of offended prophets, people who have justified judgment, righteous indignation, a justified offense. They're being unfairly treated. They're being unjustly treated. You get a few exceptions to the rule. One of them is a guy named Daniel. Daniel learned the amazing art of walking in honor without compromise in the middle of a really unrighteous time. And because of that, he outlasted multiple unrighteous kings. As a matter of fact, one time God comes to Jeremiah and he says, pray for the welfare of the city that I'm sending you into exile in, for in their welfare you will find welfare. You know who he's telling them to pray for, not against? Babylon. And Daniel comes into rulership and influence in that environment and he actually learns to love, he learns to love kings that are of a difficult political party a different political persuasion than he is. And when a word of the Lord comes through him to those kings that's actually negative, on one occasion Daniel says this phrase, O king, live forever. Word to God, this word were not for you, but for your enemies. And he actually, his heart breaks for wicked kings. He actually learns to live in honor without compromise. Walking in radical humility and having such a level of faith and joy that not even a pit of hungry lions could threaten it. And when he got out of the pit, he's still friends with the king who threw him in there. What? And he keeps outlasting these people. Why? Because God is trying to teach us something about how to live in this world that we are not of, stewarding an atmosphere that will outlast evil and darkness. Right? I'm telling you, this is super important. When Jesus comes and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you're killing the prophets and I want to protect you, I think he's trying to protect them from what the prophets were releasing when they were unjustly and unfairly treated. You say, well, could that happen? Absolutely. Let me give you one example. John the Baptist. He is, according to Jesus, the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. Jesus said it like this, of men born of women, there is none greater than John. Now John, he's hanging out, preaching the gospel. He's getting large crowds because, I mean, he's just, he just looks different, has a weird diet. What he says is crazy. He's baptizing people. I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff's happening. 
And Jesus comes over the hill one day, and John looks and goes, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He dunks him. The Holy Spirit comes down. The voice of God comes out. First time in 1,300 years, God speaks corporately. It is in Christ's baptism. And John is witness to all of this. But one day, a political leader showed up at one of John's meetings, and John couldn't take it. And he looks at this guy, and he lets him have it with both barrels revealing his sin. And when he does, that political leader, Herod, goes, yeah, we can't have that. Arrest this guy. Now, John goes to prison. Is John going to get out of prison? No, which is offensive because Jesus says in Luke 4.18, he says, I came to set prisoners and captives free, but he's not going to do anything about John. And so one day, John, you can read about this in Luke chapter 7, one day John has this this something stirring in him, and he goes and calls for a couple of his disciples. And the disciples come to John, and he says to them, you go ask Jesus a couple of questions. And when they come to Jesus in Luke 7, on John's behalf, these are the questions they ask. Are you the one? Or should we look for somebody else? Now think of the audacity of that. Considering what John saw and what he witnessed and what he knew of Jesus, what he declared over Jesus, he knew the answers to these questions. So what's wrong with John? John, the greatest of all Old Testament prophets, has an issue in his heart, and Jesus is about to expose it. And Jesus responds with the last phrase we ever have on record that he's ever going to say to his cousin John. He says, you go tell John. The blind see, the lame walk, the dead are raised, the deaf hear, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And then he finishes with this phrase, blessed is he who is not offended in me. Now, if Jesus revealed that the greatest of all Old Testament prophets could be unjustly and unfairly treated for the sake of righteousness and in that moment adopt the heart of offense, how easy could it be for others to do the same? I'd like to suggest to you, it happens then And it also happens now. And the power that prophetic people who get offended release is more than maybe we can imagine. Wow, it's quiet in here. Shall I keep going? Right. In uh, Hebrews chapter 12, jump there with me if you would, and we'll start in verse 22. And in verse 22 of Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews makes a present-day declaration. And the present declaration simply goes like this. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, myriads of angels, church of the firstborn, the general assembly, all these incredible things. Here's the thing. The reality is, according to Ephesians, you and I are seated in heavenly places right now. And it's a part of you, in a sense, the reality of the true eternal you that's actually so intertwined with Christ, it's really hard to figure out where one begins and the other ends, so that where he is on the throne, so are you. That's why Jesus said in Revelation 3.21, he says, to him who overcomes, I will grant you to actually sit with me on my throne as I overcame and sat with my father on his throne. So the declaration of Christ is there is no distance, no separation between you and God, even in heaven, even in Revelation, on the throne, you and Christ are united. You carry that level of authority and that level of power, even though it looks like you're walking around here on this earth in a physical body, there is a a spiritual reality that, that is unthreatenable to you, okay? And that is what carries the weight and carries the authority, 
And so when the writer of Hebrews says, you have come, you got to understand, you and I never walk alone, and we never walk without power. And then it finishes up with this. You've come to Jesus, the mediator, we're in Hebrews 12, the mediator of the new covenant that speaks better, some translations say a better word or better things, than the blood of who? Abel. Righteous Abel. Now, this is an interesting part to me, because I don't understand why we're contrasting the two. I mean, we should be comparing Jesus and Abel, because Abel was righteous, Jesus is righteous. Abel is innocent, Jesus is innocent. Abel was murdered by somebody that should have loved him, same with Jesus. He was murdered by people that should have loved him. They're so much more alike, it seems, than they are different, except in one area, and that is what their blood said. Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Think about that. How do we know what Jesus' blood was saying? Jesus is put on the cross. He's bleeding out. He's been stabbed in the side. He's got thorns and thistles around his brow. He's been nailed to a cross. And as he's looking at the people who are responsible for his death, they're not sorrowful, they're not repentant, they're not... They're not even upset about this. They're actually just waiting for him to die so they can just move on with life. They want to get this guy, they want to cancel Jesus out like crazy. And Jesus looks at him and says this phrase, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. That's interesting because it's not, it's not like a, a compassionate son appealing to a reluctant father to forgive an unforgivable humanity because Jesus said, I only say what I hear the father say. So when Jesus is speaking this out, he's actually showing us what the father is like. Why? Because 2 Corinthians 5 says God was actually present right there in Christ. And what was he doing? Reconciling the world to himself. And this is how he did it. It says he didn't look around and look for people who were sinning and then find the people who weren't sinning and reconcile them. It says he's, he reconciled us by not counting our sins or our transgressions against us. So God in Christ looks out at, at an unrepentant humanity who's filled with transgressions and says the only way that I'm going to be able to give them my righteousness unconditionally is by not letting their sin into their account. I'm going to take all of their sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could get into this divine exchange program we don't still fully understand so he could impart, impute, and give to us the righteousness of heaven flowing through the Son in a moment of radical compassion where his blood says you're forgiven even when you don't deserve it. Because that's what God is like. Think about this with me. That's what his blood said. I'd like to suggest to you that when Abel, righteous, justified in judgment, justified in offense, we don't know what his blood said. We can just see how the ground responded. When Abel dies, whatever was in his blood, he adopts at his deepest core a justified, righteous offense that actually releases a generational curse over his brother that followed him all the days of his life. 
Jesus, on the other hand, when he dies, his blood falls into that same ground, and instead of releasing a generational curse, the blood of Christ releases a generational grace that goes all the way back to Adam that flows all the way to you today. The generational grace of Christ is in the declaration from the blood of the Lamb of God. 1 John 4, 17 makes a declaration that we're still figuring out. And it goes like this. As he is, so are we in this world. So I got a question for you. What's in your blood? What's in your blood? You come through an election season. It's been crazy. You got a lot of offense and a lot of anger and a lot of justified judgment. I'd like to suggest that you might actually be affecting the atmosphere of your home, your city, and your world without even realizing it. You remember when Jesus said, walks up to a fig tree that is not bearing fruit out of season. And he looks at it and he curses that fig tree and the fig tree withers up. I don't think it's because Jesus was having a bad day. I think it's in one of his last acts around his disciples, I think he decided to show us something about the power of declaration and what creation responds to. Because as he is, so are we in this world. Remember the time where Jesus said, listen, if you have faith, a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea. Don't doubt in your heart, but believe the things you say will come to pass. You have whatever you say, right? And, and they look and go, wow, that's amazing. And thousands of sermons have been preached about mountain-moving faith. But see, Jesus wouldn't say something in the New Covenant without knowing what he said in the Old Covenant through Isaiah. Isaiah, by the way, I would say is a New Covenant prophet. Isaiah is incredible because he speaks of so many things in the future, but in a past tense. It's like he couldn't have even fully understood the things he was saying. Isaiah 53, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. A chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes, we were healed. He speaks of all of those things that we can only understand on this side of the cross, but he's talking hundreds of years on that side of the cross. So when Isaiah releases a word, like in Isaiah 49, he's actually releasing some new covenant revelation that Jesus ties into because he would have known what he inspired Isaiah to say all the way back then. And in Isaiah, excuse me, Isaiah 55 says this, you shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. Remember the response? The mountains and the hills will break forth before you. There will be shouts of joy. From where? It says the trees of the field. They'll clap their hands. Here's the deal. When Jesus is talking about moving mountains or the faith that moves mountains, I think we can tie it back into Isaiah 55, where if you let joy propel you, that's what it means to go out with joy. Joy actually propels my forward motion. Be led forth with peace. Peace is a person. It's the person of Christ. It's that no distance or separation relationship. When I see what he's doing and what he's up to, I let his peace actually lead me. What's happening? Joy is behind me. Peace is in front of me. What is the result of that posture of life? My future is set up for breakthrough. The mountains and the hills will break forth before you. There will be shouts of joy. The trees of the field will clap their hands. Why does the earth get so happy at a believer that lets joy propel them and peace lead them? Because the earth knows who you are. The earth knows who you are even before you do. 
See, I think when the blood of Christ fell into the earth, I think in that blood was all of the revelation knowledge necessary for the earth to get a revelation of who you are. And this is why, and if you want to turn to Romans chapter 8, you can find this there. In Romans chapter 8, it says that this earth is actually groaning in travail, and it's eagerly awaiting for the sons of God to be revealed. In other words, the earth is waiting for us to get a clue. And because we don't know who we are, the earth is literally in travail. And you're like, wait, 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 why is it in travail? Later on in Romans chapter 8, it says this, that the earth is destined to be freed from the slavery to corruption into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Now think about this. If you are enslaved, it means that you are bound to obedience to another. And according to Romans 8, right now, the earth is literally bound in obedience to people who have no clue as to who they are. Because of that, it's groaning as in travail, waiting for you and I to figure out our identity to let joy propel us and peace lead us, to pay attention to the declarations that we make, to absolutely live a life of honor without compromise. And by not compromise, I mean this, to refuse to allow a spirit of offense to actually take root in your heart against somebody else because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Uncomfortable yet? How about this? What if global warming is actually the earth heating up in response to the rage-filled hearts of a divided people made in the image of God who don't know who we are? What if the earth is physically responding to the spiritual condition of division within the body of Christ? See, this year has been a weird year. I live in Florida. I know a little bit about hurricanes. You know what? We just had number 12. You know how long they've been tracking hurricanes? For 100 years. You know the last time we had 12 hurricanes in one year? Never. The East Coast had an earthquake the other day. The West Coast is on fire. That's just the United States. Take a look at what's going on around the world, and you'll go, wow, this earth has gone crazy. And can I tell you this, that typically the prophetic community has taken a look at weather patterns and called it the judgment of God. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, I think that's wrong. Why? Because the Bible says in Psalm 116.15, the heavens were made for God, but the earth he has entrusted to the children of men. I don't think it's the judgment of God that the earth is responding to. I think it's the judgment of us. In the past, let's say you have a, and no, no offense to the Democrats in here, but let's say in the past you had a Democrat in the White House. Every time there's an earthquake, we say it's because we elected the wrong guy in the White House. Hey, what's our excuse the last four years? Didn't we elect a guy that actually stands for policies that the church believes in? So why are we having the worst weather year on record? What's our excuse prophetically? Is it the judgment of God upon us? 
Or is it the fact that the earth is responding to people made in the image and likeness of God who actually carry weight and carry power and have taken warring in the heavenlies down to a place where actually warring against each other even within the body of Christ? I just wonder. I hear calls for civil war, and I'm just going to go on record and tell you it's demonic. Are you kidding me? It's really hard to go to war against people that God loves because God loves everybody you hate. And you and I are actually meant to be living invitations to somebody else to discover the truth of their identity. That's why in Psalm 23, God says to to, uh, the psalmist, he says, I prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. And he goes, wait, 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 I'm thinking, in, in my mind, I'm thinking, there's an enemy there. He wants to kill me. You should be handing out weapons, not cooking dinner. But in Hebrew culture, to sit down at a table is to build understanding, to listen to one another, and to actually begin to build relationships so that perhaps that enemy discovers he's actually your brother. See, Jesus told us what to do with enemies. Maybe you've made a few online. But Jesus told us what to do with our enemies. He said this, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. This is how he defines it. Bless those who curse you. In other words, those who are actually releasing curses over you, here's how you respond to it. You want to neutralize curses spoken over you? Release blessing. Bless those who curse you. And pray for, not against, super easy. We got a lot of prayer meetings going on against things right now. Pray for, listen to this, just let this offend your heart. Pray, pray for those who despitefully use you. Despitefully, that means that they know exactly what they're doing. Use you. That means that they're bringing abuse and hurt and harm into your life. They know what they're doing when they bring harm into your life. You know what Jesus says about those people? Pray for them. What is he trying to teach us to do? He's trying to teach us how to walk in so much power that we neutralize a cursed atmosphere and bring peace to it. He's trying to teach us how to walk in so much power, aligning with heaven's purpose that we can neutralize a cursed atmosphere and bring peace to a situation. He's trying to teach us how to walk in so much power that we can actually neutralize a cursed atmosphere and bring peace to a situation. Now, people are constantly sending me all the time. I get, I'm getting conspiracy theories every day. My inbox is flooded with conspiracy theories. Oh, my goodness. Good people, godly people. It feels like you're just losing their stuff. It's crazy to me. And here's why it is. Because Jesus walked on this earth, and he wasn't ignorant. He walked among humanity, and he knew everything about everything. He knew every person, he knew every mind, he knew every motive of every heart. He knew the molecular structure of every rock and tree and blade of grass. He knew everything about everything. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Everything, Colossians says, is held together by the power of his word and the word of his power. It is literally his declaration that's literally holding you together on a molecular level. You and I are literally the manifested song of God. And he's looking for us to come into harmony with his heart. Do you hear what I just said? 
You're the song of God, and he's looking for us to come into harmony with his heart. And, and, and people will say to me, Bill, you, you can't be ignorant of what's going on out there. You've got to be up on all this stuff. This, and my deep state theory is deeper than yours. It's just a contest that people just are constantly throwing at me. But I look at Jesus, who knew everything about everything about everything, and he's standing in the middle of a religious system that was as corrupt as corrupt could be. They actually could see the things that Jesus was doing, and they decided to murder him. Think about how corrupt a, a religious system would have to be to murder its own God. And he was also standing in the middle of a political system that had so many conspiracy theories going on behind the scenes. There were so many hidden conspiracies and backstabbing behind the scenes that eventually the most powerful empire the earth has ever seen is going to collapse and become nothing. And Jesus knows all of this. So here's the question I have. When he stands up to preach and opens his mouth, what does the man who knows everything say? The kingdom is like. The kingdom is like. The kingdom is like. What is he doing? Is he ignoring the issues of the day? No. He's elevating the conversation to show us where true spiritual power comes from. Keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. What, what's the result of that? Won't the devil run rampant in the earth? No, I'd like to suggest exactly the opposite. Romans 16, 19. You're going to run write the scripture down, put it on your refrigerator, put it on the bumper of your car, even if it's an Audi. I, I'm just saying. No, never put a bumper sticker on an Audi. That would, that, oh my goodness. Hurts my heart to think about it. Romans 16, 19 says this. Be excellent in what is good. Be innocent of evil, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet rapidly, quickly, soon. Excellent in what is good. That means this. Be experts in the goodness of God. Turn to the person next to you and just say, God is good. Right? Now, we say that in church all the time, and God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. Right? Don't let that ever become a trite statement. It's a reality. God is always good. He's never not been good. He always will be good, and he's getting gooder all the time. Right? Why? Because of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So it's biblical. So the reality is this. You and I were actually meant to be experts in the goodness of God. When Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they didn't create evil. They only became aware of and threatened by something they were never supposed to even be fearful of. In other words, evil was never meant to threaten a child of God. See, darkness can only threaten you when you forget that you're the light of the world. You say, wow, that feels blasphemous. No, it's not. It's what Jesus said. Jesus said of himself, I am the light of the world. Then he turns to you and I and says, you are the light of the world. Why? Because as he is, so are we in this world. Be experts in the goodness of God. To be an expert in something, you have to focus on it, study on it, live it, taste it, breathe it, chew it, meditate on it until it becomes a very part of your DNA. Just ingest the nutrients of the goodness of God until it flows through your blood. And then it says, be innocent of evil. What does that mean? It means don't ever give darkness a place of influence in your heart. And I feel like right now, so much of the body of Christ has become a marketing tool for darkness. Have you seen what the devil's doing over here? Have you seen what darkness is happening over here? Let's all focus on that. Let, 
It's almost as if we've done the opposite and we're wondering why the devil is going crazy in the earth today as if he's got all the freedom in the world and the church is acting like God has actually run out of power. Romans 16, 19, be excellent, be experts in the goodness of God, be innocent of evil, don't let darkness have an influence in your heart. You know what the result is? It says the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. Here's how it looks, and i got to make this super practical for me. I'm in worship of God, I'm focused on the things of God, I'm enamored with His goodness. Joy is the wind at my back, peace is the warm sun that's leading me forward. Suddenly I realize there's something under my feet, and I look down, I'm like, whoa, devil, how'd you get under there? Because the defeat of darkness is a byproduct of seeking first the kingdom of God. You want to defeat darkness? Seek first the kingdom of God. You will find yourself constantly victorious when your eyes are fixed on Christ. Because what you behold, you become, and we reflect the nature of the one who's captured our gaze. May he never look at us and say, why is your countenance fallen? I see you're angry in your heart because I'm looking at your face, and I'm not seeing joy, and I'm not seeing peace. Oh, my goodness, when I look at him, I can't help but just get enamored with just a reflection of the glory of God. We beholding is in a mirror. Just We're changed. In that beholding, I'm sitting there looking at him, and he's looking at me, and I'm seeking the face of the one that I love, and he's responding to my gaze. I'm responding to his gaze. I'm seeing literal love come from his eyes. It's shining off of my face, reflecting everywhere into the world around me, and suddenly I look around, and I realize, man, the world is filled with light. Satan's under my feet. This is the best year I've ever had. Listen, this is how we redeem 2020, by the church literally coming to a place where we lift our eyes, elevate the conversation, bring the focus back to the kingdom of God. Let the peace of God rule and reign in our hearts and put to death this whole viral situation. You understand? A bug, a virus, man-made or natural, doesn't matter, was never meant to be a threat to the kingdom of God. And neither were opposing political parties. You and I have a mandate in the days ahead to answer the question, what's in your blood? And you can be like Abel, righteous, as Jesus said, and suddenly you find yourself offended and justified in your judgment. Or you can be like Christ, and instead of releasing generational curses left and right over brothers and sisters, even in the faith, let a generational grace flow from your blood through your declarations into this world. And I pray this, that every person in here, that when people meet you, they will know. They will know the grace of Christ. They will know the love of Christ. They will see it in your countenance. They'll see it in your eyes. They'll hear it in your voice. They'll feel it just in response to the very spirit of the one who's captured your heart that's actually within you. You and I have been given a divine blood transfusion because of the cross so that his blood is our blood. And what's in his blood ought to be released through our declaration. Would you stand with me this morning? <clears throat> I feel really strongly right now. Tracy, can you grab me the bottle of water? Um, I feel really strongly right now. People in here, when I said generational grace, I felt like some of you in here were going, I, I need that for my family. You say, I need generational grace to be released over my family, past, present, and future. How many of that, you that, that resonates with? Would you raise your hands? Let me see it. 
all over this room. Okay, take and put the other hand up too. Father, I pray right now by the power of your Holy Spirit that there be a generational grace released into this room, a revelation of that generational grace. God, and I just know that what your blood spoke to this ground was a truth of the identity of who every person is in here. So we bless this land. We bless this atmosphere. We bless this city. We speak welfare to this city in the name of Jesus. I say Columbus, Ohio, you're blessed of God. Your atmosphere is a kingdom atmosphere. And God, I thank you for this house that's invaded that atmosphere, literally by buying land right in the heart of this city to release the kingdom of God from within them to impact the world around them. And God, I pray for our sons, our daughters, Father, for our family, for the generations that are to come, that there would be a generational grace supernaturally that be released in our declaration. God, would you just partner with the words of our mouth to release a grace that surprises even us? Woo, yeah. <laughs> All right, would you take and put your hand over your heart? I promised the Lord at the beginning of this year that I would never do a service, no matter how many Christians I thought were in the room. I promised the Lord at the beginning of this year I'd never do a service without inviting people to come to Christ. They're kind of coming to the end of our time here, so I want to do this. I believe there's people perhaps in this room, you've walked away from God, you felt a disillusionment in your heart. No, keep your hand right there. It's a good place for it to be. Uh, you felt a disillusionment in your heart. Maybe this, this disease, this virus has sort of taken a toll on your faith. Maybe you've watched division, it's taken a toll on your faith. Maybe you've heard prophetic words that haven't come to pass, it's taken a toll on your faith, and you found yourself in a place of deconstruction. I want you to see God is taking the sledgehammer that you've been using to bash religion with out of your hand right now. It doesn't take any skill to demolish something because some of your deconstruction has turned into destruction, right? He's taking the sledgehammer out of your hand, but he's not leaving you empty-handed. He's putting a framing hammer in it. Now the word of the Lord to you is, what are you going to build? What are you going to build? See, this is what's going to take skill. You say, I don't know how to build anything. God's going to teach you by the power of his Holy Spirit to be a builder, not a destroyer of faith, but a builder of the faith. And what a builder has the ability to do is look at a condemned building and see the value that's in it and salvage the value to create something brand new where that which was there before actually becomes more value in the new creation. And God is going to teach some of you how to be builders that have, you've, some of you have had a great time just getting together with your friends in coffee shops, stand up Bible studies, and sledging religion all day long. God's going to actually replace that sledgehammer with a framing hammer and teach you to build something new. And you're going to be the new builders in the body of Christ, the body that's, that's taking itself apart. You're going to be the new builders in the body. You hear what I said? You're going to be new reformer builders in the body of Christ that's actually going to put back together what it seems like things have been falling apart. You're going to see what's valuable and put it back together. I also feel like there's people in this room right now today, you, you say, I, I feel like I've heard the gospel and I, I, I want to say yes to Jesus. How do I do that? I'm going to lead you right now. I'm going to invite you all just to pray this simple prayer with me right now, just all with your voice, with your declaration. I just want us all, whether you've said this a thousand times or this is the first time you've ever said this, I want to invite you right now to say yes to Jesus. Now is the moment that we reaffirm that place in our heart. Would you just pray this prayer with me and repeat after me? Lord Jesus, I receive your grace by faith right now. And I thank you for dying on the cross for me and for raising to newness of life and taking me with you out of that grave. I am your child now and forevermore. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. 
and teach me how to hear your voice. Thank you, Jesus, for your love. And right now, take out of me every offense, every judgment, and fill me with your grace. This is just a moment to let go, just to let go, just to let go, to let go, let go. Take a look at your hand. Take your hand off your heart. Take a look at it. Something I'm seeing right now. I want you to look down at the palm of your hand. I want you to see written in your hand, just in your own mind's eye, I want you to see the name of the person that has hurt you the most. Some of you are like, I do not want that person's name on my hand. Some of you are like, I need a bigger hand. A lot, a lot, a lot of people on that list. Just pick one name just for the sake of this one exercise, just this one name. Isaiah 49, God says to a people that have thrown him away, have forgotten him, walked away from him, he said, I have inscribed, engraved your name on the palm of my hand. The Bible says even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. And I want you to understand what's happening right now. Some of you have a hard time doing this, but forgiveness frees the forgiver. I'm not talking about letting some, somebody get away with something. I'm talking about liberating you. I'm talking about freeing you. And you're like, yeah, I want to be free. Just that one name. Now take that name, just, put your, just clench your fist over top of it. I'm just going to pray on behalf of all of you right now. Father, I pray right now that you would release a supernatural forgiveness in this room, that even in this one name, God, that there would be a divine compassion that would fill our hearts. God, teach us to love like you. Teach us to give grace like you. Teach us to forgive like you. One more time, take that one hand, put it up over your heart. Just say, I don't want that person that close to me. Oh, my goodness. If he's taken people who have hurt him and inscribed their name on the palm of his hand, taught us how to love our enemies. Could it be possible that we're changing the atmosphere in this room right now? And we're changing the atmosphere of our homes right now. We're changing the atmosphere over this city right now. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I just speak and release a blessing over this congregation today these sons and daughters of yours. Lord, may this year be redefined. I love that word we heard earlier. May the narrative be redefined. May you teach us how to walk in radical humility, how to be propelled by joy, to be led forth with peace. And may the atmosphere around us be primed for breakthrough. In Jesus' name, amen.